0: The Seahawks blew a two-score lead late, falling 17-16 to the Rams and slipping to 6-4 in the process. Mike and I weren't the only ones frustrated by the loss, as evidenced by the slew of questions and comments we received after the game. In an effort to make sense of it all, we're bringing you a special mailbag episode. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my infectious producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today?
1: Doing great, man. You know, I feel like I had a really lighthearted Sunday, (laughs) a lot of positive... Things and influences oh my in my God. life really coming to fruition. Uh-huh. Yeah. Feeling great. All vibes are high. Morale is up. Yeah, everything's good, man. How are you?
0: Honestly, man, I'm still irritated, <laughs> and fr-
1: <laughs> understandably so. That shit sucked. That was not great.
0: <laughs> and frankly, I'm irritated that I'm still irritated. Like yeah. I was thinking, all right, I fucking blew off some steam in the article last night i was rereading yes, it this morning when we were yeah. recording the audio read of it and i was like man i was freaking keyed up for that one so uh apologies to all the readers and thank you for uh navigating that minefield but i did think i would be feeling better about the loss today you know after sleeping on being like all right whatever whatever these things happen but i'm not <laughs> I'm still frustrated, man. I think I'm more frustrated by this one point loss than I am about any of the others this season, including the blowout in Baltimore.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the close losses always irk you more just they because to, man. the what if seems more realistic. It's a lot more tangible. It was just right there. They dangled the Twinkie and they did not capitalize.
0: So. But even yeah. so, I mean, they were really close in that Bengals game, and I I was able to process that pretty easily. It was like, good team that played great. We were undermanned up front and still almost won it. Like, that would have felt like a real hang-your-hat type win. This is just one they should have had.
1: Yeah, I mean, there is no reason that a 3-6 and six Rams team, which one of those wins came against you at your <laughs> just about worst... uh you should not be getting swept by that team if you consider yourself a legitimate playoff contender and the Seahawks fancy themselves as that. And it sure as hell did not look like it yesterday.
0: No. And I get it. The styles make fights and the way that Sean McVay fights, just it's the freaking antidote for how Pete Carroll wants to play football. But still, man, look, all right, we, we got the whole show to talk about. (laughs) And the good news is we've got an incredible group of listeners and readers who flooded us with their thoughts and questions last night. We will dive into those in a moment, but first, if you're listening or watching us right now, it's hopefully because you like the show. And if you like the show, there are a few ways you can support it. If you're on Apple podcasts or Spotify, take a couple seconds to leave us a five-star rating. And if you're feeling extra supportive, leave us a quick review. You can do that right now. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel where you'll find full video episodes, entertaining clips, and the audio reads of every Cigar Thoughts article after each game this season. We are also thrilled to announce our awesome new partnership with Westland Distillery in Seattle. If you're watching on YouTube, you'll catch me enjoying a glass of their flagship American Single Malt. Got it right here, locked and loaded. Official whiskey, the Seattle Kraken. And, I mean, look, man, needless to say, I'm stoked to be working with them, and one of the reasons I love their whiskey so much is that they're excellent pairings with a good cigar. And speaking of, we do have our own special release of cigars that you can purchase at a terrific price as a listener of the show. In fact, smoking one of them right now. And as many of you know, we partnered with one of the most prestigious cigar manufacturers in the world to release these official Cigar Thoughts cigars, which you can order directly from CigarThoughtsNFL.com. Just follow the link to get these easy to smoke stogies rolled with 13 year aged premium Dominican tobacco leaf, or hit us up on Twitter or Instagram and we'll send you the details directly. As we've mentioned before, a box of 10 Stogies with this particular blend would normally go for between $350 to $400, but our partnership allows you to get your own bundle of 10 for just $169, which is less than half of MSRP. And the cigars, they come with a Boveda humidification pack and a Mylar storage bag to make sure they stay fresh whether you have a humidor or not. All right, Mike, before we get to the questions, tell me your feelings about this team and that game now that you've had a night to sleep on it. I know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, okay, six and four. After week one, I mean, after the last time they played the Rams, six and four probably looked about right, you know, and based on the inconsistencies that they've shown up to this point throughout the season, they haven't clicked to the level that we expected that the talent that they have amassed on their roster would by this point. So they're really just a 6-4 and team right now, and I think that you can take advantage of a weird year, lots of quarterbacks down, offensive numbers down league-wide. Yes. Like you, It's really just taking advantage of a kind of cattywampus year. It but is. But they don't really look like they're poised to take advantage to the it. degree that you would like them to be able to.
0: And look, man, we we talk all the time about how – Each NFL season is a bunch of mini seasons within it. And, you know, when we had bump on last week, Brock on the week before we were talking about how this five game stretch is kind of its own season, the toughest part of the season. And it would have been really helpful if they had started off with a win. But I mean, you know, we watched that first game together. And if I had offered you six and four after that game, would you have taken it? Held out for something better.
1: I would. I would take six and four after the shit fest that we watched in week one. You know, like there's before the season. I think that you would have really hoped for seven and three, which it sure looked like they were about to achieve for the majority of the game yesterday, and then things quickly deteriorated. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we
0: definitely weren't alone after what feels like an eminently avoidable loss. Now, you did the Lord's work and rounded up some of the inquiries we got. And real quick, thank you to everyone who submitted. I'd love to get to all of them today, but that would probably take about five hours.
1: So, Mike, where should we begin? We got a lot of responses. We got a lot of questions. We also got some statements as well. <laughs> Not just just, you know, what questions do you have about here? the
0: Seahawks? Hey, fucking suck. <laughs> right. Yes, thank exactly. You. Thank you for your question.
1: <laughs> there were a lot of questions that were similar. Along the same lines, I clustered together.
0: Well, I, I think you were telling me we got like 50 or 60 questions that came in after the game last night. And and to be clear, I don't know what ones Mike's asking. I, I haven't seen most of these. So this is going to be answering off the cuff in real time.
1: So why don't you kick us off? All right. Well, the first statement to introduce <laughs> the, the first uh, round of questions is a simple one. Uh huh. And that statement is Drew Locke. So, we had a lot of questions. The first of which from Grant Driver. Grant asks, Can we shut the Drew Lock stands up now? Mm. Drew Lock took his first truly meaningful extended number of snaps of the season after leading one drive in New York. Yep. And it did not go as well this time around, Jackson. What, uh, what are your thoughts on the Geno Drew Lock discourse at this moment in time?
0: Well, first of all, shout out Grant. I actually know. Grant Driver, he's a great guy. Make sure you're following him on Twitter. Uh, play golf with him and I uh, appreciate him chiming in. Here's the thing we've talked about Drew Locke on this show, and I'd like to think that if the Seahawks were without Geno for a random month in the season, that he could go two and two. If they're without Gino for the next month, and I haven't heard for this what,
1: month, this yeah, month is a different story. It,
0: totally. And I haven't heard how, how bad Gino's elbow is, if he has a chance to play on such short rest or not, but it was not encouraging. And look, if you've been reading my stuff or listening to the show, you you know I'm frustrated by the bench Gino uh, discourse. I I think that it's so much easier to say, do something different without like actually giving a better alternative. And, and I felt like, well, Gino's struggling. So let's just get someone different in there and see what happens. This is what happens. Drew Locke is a backup for a reason. He had every chance to win this job after the team traded Russell Wilson. In fact, many people considered him the favorite to win that job. And he didn't. And it's not because he's bad. I think he's probably fine as far as backups go, but he didn't win it because Gino is a lot better. And it was so evident even when Geno came back in with the hurt elbow and immediately led them down the field. And if they had more time or if they had more timeouts, I 100% believe they would have scored there. So, yeah, we can put it to rest. And I do want to say, though, I think there's a difference between wanting to bench Geno Smith for Drew Locke and saying Geno Smith is maybe not the guy moving forward after this year. I think there's some credence to that. I think you always have to reevaluate who your starting quarterback is. And there's flexibility in the contract that Seattle can explore other options after the season. But right now I feel perfectly fine with Geno Smith as the quarterback of this team. And yes, this conversation between him and Drew Locke is done unless Locke goes out there and lights up the 49ers or is even competitive against the 49ers. All right, maybe we can revisit it, but hopefully it's Gino in there.
1: Yeah, I think that we gotta give Gino his flowers for coming back into the game like a goddamn superhero oh my on that God. final drive. He did. And I mean I'm sure we'll we'll talk a lot about the coaching and all that stuff, but just the the top down decision making in terms of at the end of the first half as well, where they voluntarily relinquished the opportunity for points. We've had lots of conversations about Gino and about DK Metcalf. Mm-hmm. And those guys always seem to come through and are at their best. Their connection is at its apex in two minutes. Yep. They're moving the ball down the field yes. when they're on the offensive, when they have the defense on their heels. And it was great to, for the second week in a row, see that on the game deciding drive at the end. It's a real shame that Jason Myers couldn't put that ball through the uprights because what... Uh, a monstrous drive from Gino coming in after sitting out for the previous three.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Man. I, I think that Gino is probably somewhere in the range of 10th to 13th best quarterbacks in the NFL. And that is really difficult to improve on. I know it feels like, Oh, well there's an entire third of the league that is maybe better than Gino. Let's, let's try and get someone like that. We're talking about nine to 12 dudes on earth that are better than Geno Smith at playing quarterback in the NFL. It's not, we're we're not just talking about like, Oh, you know, he's let's say 12th out of 32. He's 12th out of 8 billion. That's really difficult to improve upon. All right. Next question. All right.
1: Next question comes in from Charlie Smith. Charlie asks, will the league send the Seahawks a letter apologizing for the incorrect call on Witherspoon on third down? right before the Rams' last touchdown. Will they get an apology letter again? So let's 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 dive into that. What, what were your thoughts on that flag when it flew? I thought it was pass interference in real time. And then, I
0: mean, you saw the receiver cutting across the back of the end zone, making contact, and falling down as the pass was coming. I was like, shit, that's pass interference. Then on the replay, Witherspoon played it perfectly. He had his head turned around, looking at the ball, feet got tangled up. It was a bad call. Maybe there's a letter of an apology that that comes in, but like they scored right before that and that got taken back on a bad call against Tyler Higby. It was a great play by Rick Wollen, or was it Julian Love? I think it was Julian Love that actually initiated the contact at the goal line to get that flag. But that was a BS call too. the refs were way, way, way too involved in this game. But I don't get the sense that there was bias or I, I just don't subscribe to that in general, um, but certainly in this game, I thought there were bad calls on both sides. I think the refs should have swallowed their whistle on a third of the penalties that got called. Yeah, the Witherspoon one was wrong. So was the Higby one right before it.
1: I just think that that Witherspoon call was a the game is the game moment. Like That's mm-hmm. just going to get called. That mm-hmm. flag is going to fly. Uh, the one that was <laughs> what I believed in the moment to be the end of the game was the illegal hands to the face on reek woolen yep yep and that was that that was 100 the right call yep like it was he got his
0: hands there is no i said this in the article last night in that play i mean they had like ben Skaronic's understudy lined up against reek woolen in that situation and stafford wasn't rolling that way at all and here's the thing we love tall corners we love him, but there is additional risk to having a six, four corner. And that is his hands are higher than most other corners. And he caught the face, he grabbed the face mask and turned the dude's head around. That's going to get called every time. Now we can have a discussion about automatic first down penalties that I have an issue with. I don't think that there should be hardly any calls out there that are automatic first down. It's a five yard penalty. Great. Make it third and 10, but that was third and 15 and they all knew the rules, and Wolin messed that up.
1: I agree with you. That was the biggest penalty of the game. Is that going to be the new market inefficiency that teams are taking advantage of playing the Seahawks, where you just roster like some five foot six motherfucker <laughs> that just doesn't get any snaps until critical third downs late in the game? Line him up across some reek, and he's going to get cold shocked, <laughs> just- and you got an automatic first down. <laughs> Go
0: headbutt his hands.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the statements, we got a statement from uh, from Jesse J Husky 86 that said, my hot take is I'm more pissed about Woolen's hands to the face penalty on third and 15 than anything else. And I think that that's that's reasonable because the exact same thing happened against the Browns. Yes. So there, there is a one hundred percent correlation between games that Reek Willen, uh snags an in interception this season, and he has a blasphemous hands to the face That's that the extends a critical it, late yeah. game drive.
0: Yeah, it yeah. was bad. And like, look, man, these guys are playing an impossible game. They really are. Mistakes happen. And like, in a vacuum, all right, that was shitty. The timing of it was the worst part. But like. That was one of 12 penalties on the Seahawks in this game. And most of them were deserved. They were just incredibly undisciplined. They've been undisciplined all season long, and they've mostly gotten away with it, and it cost them in this game.
1: Yep. I think that you and I can agree that if the Seahawks team that we saw yesterday showed up to play the 49ers, they would have lost by like 25, 30 plus points. Yes. Yeah. So... Fittingly, the next question comes in from Mike at Coffee Dad 11 Shouts to Mike. Great name. Team Love Mike. the name. Uh, what should we as fans imbibe while we watch the Hawks on Thanksgiving Day, and why isn't it bathtub gin? <laughs> it probably should be bathtub <laughs> gin. <laughs> sounds, sounds like a pretty good call.
0: Yeah. yeah, if you got any absinthe on hand, you might just want to black out for it. No, I. here's the thing. I... I think the Seahawks will be competitive on Thursday night and competitive is good enough because that's all the Rams were. That's all the Rams were in this game and they were barely competitive, but you put yourself in a position where one or two things goes your way. You can win a game. I think that'll be Seattle for me. Look, I'm y'all know I'm a whiskey guy. I'm a bourbon guy. Um, I'm on this big Westland kick right now. So I will be watching the game. Um, with the American single malt that I'm having right now, just because I, it goes great with cigars and cigars are, are my thing during Seahawks games. But if that wasn't an option, uh, I would probably do something with high West or whistle pig. Yeah. Just because like after you've eaten a bunch, whiskey has a way of just kind of like filling all the cracks <laughs> between the food yeah. that's in your stomach, kind of coating it all. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, I get a little bit of that, inner warmth, um, that's probably how I would approach this game and probably how I will approach this game on Thursday.
1: Nice little voluminous beverage on hand. Yes, sir. All right. Next question comes in from Nolan Waters. What up, Nolan? What are the odds that the Seahawks finish below 500 and miss the playoffs?
0: They would probably have to finish below 500 to miss the playoffs because all of the teams that are on the outside looking in are four and six or worse. So I I do think there's an overlap. I mean, there's a chance they go nine and eight and still miss the playoffs. Um, you know, thanks to the lions that didn't happen last year, but it would have. So I think that's a possibility. 30%. I think, I think you play the rest of the season out a hundred times, 30 of them. Seattle misses the playoffs. Um, had they won yesterday, they could lose the next four games and be okay. Um, Now they got to win one of them and probably two because 10 wins you're in for sure. Nine wins, I'd say you got like a 75% chance of getting in. And look, that means going three and five the rest of the way, three and four the rest of the way, three and four. Yeah, Seattle can absolutely do that. I'll be surprised if Seahawks miss the playoffs. And that has as much to do with the rest of the NFC. I think Seattle, I mean, they've got the fifth best record in the NFC out of 16 teams right now. We'll see where that is after the stretch, but like everyone has tough games, and everyone's going to have a pile of injuries
1: before now and the end of the season. I'm still really confident Seahawks get in. Many seasons. They're, they're embarking on another one right now, and there's going to be a final stretch that looks completely different, has a completely different Total. complexion than the one it has right now. And they're done with the Rams. <laughs> what, you're not looking forward? You're not basking in the glow of another Rams-Seahawks Sunday right now? I am Just not. amazing, positive experience for all. Uh, Speaking of, question comes in from uh, CT Haller one Witherspoon, DK, Charles Cross, and two firsts for Sean McVay? You you pulling (laughs) the trigger on that? It's ugly, dude. It's always ugly. No matter who is taking the field, those games are a slog. They are. Sean McVay has a lot to do with that. He
0: does. Um, There aren't a lot of coaches I would rather have than Pete Carroll. It's a pretty short list. Um, We've actually done this list in real time with Greg Rosenthal a couple of times. And I had him down at like 13, 14, uh, you know, two years ago. Last year, I think I moved him back up to like seven or eight. That's probably still where it's at because the number of coaches I would rather have Monday through Saturday over Pete Carroll is probably zero. number of coaches I would rather have on Sunday, it's a short list, maybe half a dozen. Sean McVay is one of them. I wouldn't trade all of our best players to get him, though, because Sean McVay is winning, but he has Matt Stafford and he has Aaron Donald and like those two are the reason that the Rams won, you know, when they didn't have Matt Stafford last year, Seattle swept them. But every time that they've had Matt Stafford or Jared Goff or John Wolford, they've beaten the Seahawks. God. So yeah, I mean, if I could swap Pete for McVay, I would think really hard about that straight up, but I wouldn't add anything to the deal. Sure
1: sure the aaron donald thing is ridiculous like what there there were all those whispers about him retiring after that super bowl and mcveigh potentially trying to get one of those commentator jobs like come oh, on guys. That would have been what great. else is there to achieve like that what what else is great. on the table for you to what what else is there to gain totally we get like now. joe judge in there yeah some you know that would have been great come on really just that's a franchise that needs some discipline So (laughs) come on. They need the Belichick. Who who better to pull from than the Belichick (laughs) tree? Exactly. Exactly. They have a great history of that sort of thing. Next question from Chris Free. Why can't we stop screens? And I will add in a caveat to that as well. Why can we now run screens? (laughs) Okay.
0: I'm actually glad someone asked about the screens because right now, the way that the NFL defense has evolved, we're seeing offense down across the league. Right? Like very few quarterbacks out there that have been around for a while are having career seasons. And every year you see 10, 12 quarterbacks have the best season of their career. That's not happening this year. And a big part of it is because defenses are now prioritizing taking away the explosive play and making you get first down after first down after first down. Well, there's two ways to beat that two high safety shell defense that everyone's playing right now. That's by running the ball well and screen plays. And the way that Seattle plays their defense, especially in the middle of the field, the two best ways to beat it are screen plays and crossing routes. And that's like the McVeigh offense is screen plays and crossing routes. And when you have a guy with top five arm talent in the world, like they do in Matthew Stafford, he's going to hit all those windows because that's what it requires. Seattle's defense is forcing you to hit small windows. And if you can do it, you can beat them why Philip Rivers was really successful against them. You know, Tom Brady was super successful against them because they can hit those 10, 15. Brock Purdy has been super successful against them because they really excel in that part of the field. But because Seattle is so willing to drop players into coverage, linebackers and edge rushers into coverage, what happens is you've created this little bubble that allows all of the offensive linemen to coagulate on <laughs> on a screen pass and the guys that are rushing are rushing like they are 100 get to the quarterback sales been great at getting to the quarterback this year it's been really refreshing the antidote to that is to dump a screen pl- pass over the top and it comes down to discipline from the offensive linemen to not get too far downfield so I would say the reason screen passes are so effective against Seattle is because that is just the way the Seahawks play de- defense. Now, the fact that Seattle can successfully run screen plays now is, like, amazing because, <laughs> frankly, it's one of the most effective plays in modern NFL. And it comes back to discipline. Seattle has been so undisciplined in so many ways for so long. You know, I had a comment uh, in in my article Someone commented and, and saying, you know, or I, I had made the case that the amount of penalties that Seattle commits year over year is always near the top of the league. And I said, that's reflective of coaching. And, and this commenter pushed back on that. And I appreciate that saying, you know, how, how can you say it's because of coaching and not just because they have a bunch of young players? Well, because they haven't always had just a bunch of young players. They've been committing a lot of penalties Regardless of who's on the roster. And and look, that's you play for Pete Carroll, he's he wants you playing on the edge. And most of the time, the juice is worth the squeeze. I know I'm I'm getting off track talking about penalties, but it comes comes back to discipline. And the one area that I think Seattle has shown a lot better discipline in is these offensive linemen realizing: hey, you gotta take an extra beat. If you're running a screenplay, you do not need to get to the second level right away. You got to wait. And they've done a great job of doing that. I also think Jackson Smith and Jigba helps a lot. His ability to create space within a couple yards of the line of scrimmage. doesn't seem like much. It seems like it's an easy skill. It's not. He's good enough at threatening downfield. And we saw that with his awesome 32-yard catch earlier in the game. Yep. That you now have to respect that. And his ability to sell that and then come back for the screen I think has a lot to do with it so it's great to see the screen passes working in Seattle's favor on offense now I don't know just because of the way they want to play defense that we're going to see them get much better at defending them
1: yeah one of the things that I'll say is I think that Jamal Adams has proven pretty adept at being he's every so often like a one-man wrecking crew where you'll see you'll see a back like you know slip out uh, receive a screen pass and they'll have like two or three linemen out in front with lots of space and just jamal adams and then he splits those two linemen or like you know feints right to get the guy to move outside and he just like swoops around inside and it just having a guy that can single-handedly wreck plays like that is is really important, and you know you probably saw a drop off in that regard with him on the sideline yesterday. Uh, on another note, how tired of the Seahawks Rams rivalry must Bobby Wagner be? That dude has been getting ravaged on those shallow crossers for years. He hasn't won a game in that back and forth since the fucking MySpace era.
0: It's ridiculous. I know, right? the the one year that the Seahawks <laughs> sweep the Rams, he's That's on. That's the, the Rams. key.
1: That's the key.
0: Yeah. <laughs> You know, and, and here's the thing, Bobby Wagner is awesome. I'm glad we're talking about Bobby. He has played so much better this year than I thought he would. And of course he's lost a step. Dude's been in the league for what? 12 years now. He has a hundred plus tackles in all 12 of them. He's like the third player in NFL history to Very have a hundred tackles in 12 straight years. Like solid enough. Yeah. Yeah. Acceptable. Yeah. The thing is, is like, does he struggle in coverage? Maybe, but what he's asked to do, maybe Fred Warner could do it. I don't know that there's another middle linebacker in the league that can carry these sale routes where he's running 30 or 40 yards with the receiver and, and still be able to get his head around like a defensive back and make a play. It's just, it's such a tough assignment. They trust him and and Jordan Brooks to do it. I think they're both above average at carrying those routes, But it is maybe the most difficult assignment you can give a linebacker. And when you have a quarterback that can make perfect throws. And look, Matthew Stafford's accuracy when combined with the difficulty of throws that he attempts, you'd have to think really, really hard about quarterbacks who are better at making those throws. Maybe Justin Herbert, maybe Joe Burrow, maybe Patrick Mahomes. And after that, I don't think there's anyone that's on Matthew Stafford's level. So I think the reason that it's so tough on Poppy is they call those routes over and over and over again with all the confidence in the world in their quarterback and their receivers to make it happen.
1: Well, I think that the the pushback that I would have on that is what's the point of Jordan Brooks standing on the sideline for a lot of those dime personnel snaps, yeah. right? Like if his if his greatest strength is <laughs> coverage linebacker, baby, uh, sticking with, you know, like, you know, turning around and carrying somebody up the seam or being able to carry those those deep crossers, which he's and shown he is the ability to do, especially because, you know, I mean, Bobby has, the years have taken their toll. Like he's obviously doesn't have the same movement skills that he once did. When, when does Jordan Brooks take up the mantle there? You know, that's actually a
0: great question. I had not thought about that. I got to imagine it's hard to get Bobby off the field. And when you have so much talent in the secondary, I don't have a problem with them running those dime personnel because they've got so many good players between their safeties and their corners. I would like to see Jordan in on those. Try it out. Try it out. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that there is a huge delta between Bobby and Jordan Brooks and their ability to diagnose and make tackles on run plays. So I don't think you're sacrificing anything there. If they do try a draw or a screenplay The
1: administration gap is, is the, is the big thing.
0: I, I think so. I mean, Bobby, Bobby is like a Mensa level linebacker, you know, and on those high leverage plays, I can imagine that it's like, okay, you know what? Maybe we'll sacrifice a step in coverage to have the guy at the epicenter Who's going to make sure everybody is doing what they're supposed to be doing?
1: All right, let's move on to this question from Dennis Gill ten. Dennis, what up, asks, Dennis? Why does the defense keep blowing leads in the fourth quarter? They got lucky with Washington and Detroit, but not in this game. The refs did. didn't help, but still. So, what's up with these? What's up with these blown leads late in games?
0: Yeah, the fourth quarter defense hasn't been great. You want to see them finish the game, and they haven't done that. Seattle has always struggled against hurry up four minute, two minute style offenses. And most defenses do right. Like offensive efficiency goes way up in hurry up uh, situations when teams are no longer trying to set up counter punches like they do early in the game. I think Seattle defends scripted plays really well. I think they are really good at diagnosing and attacking the most of the plays that they see, but they have really struggled in stopping the passing attack late in games. And it's because I think the pass rush gets tired. I don't think they have enough guys that are capable of getting to the quarterback. They've got some. Mafia's been awesome. I think this is where I don't think these comebacks is, happen. I want to
1: talk to you about this. I want okay. to talk to you about this. Let's I want to talk about the absence of Uchen and the Wosu. Thank you. That's let's, what I was let's gonna get say. into that. I don't think the command
0: that. I don't think the two touchdowns from the commanders happen. With Uchenna Nuoso in the game, and I don't think the 10 points late from the Rams happen with Uchenna Nuoso in there. And it's not just because he's good. He's a really good pass rusher. It's because now it's Frank, Frank Clark. Clark taking those reps. It's Daryl Taylor taking those reps. And those guys aren't as good.
1: Yeah. Well, that's they've been like the first defensive snap of the game. Draymond Jones was playing edge. Because they're not sure that Daryl Taylor—that's not why they the to hold up in the run game. Exactly, exactly. So it's it's the same sort of thing where you're trading for Leonard Williams because it pushes everybody one slot down the bench, right? Yep. Uh, but it's it's taking that back up. You lose Uchenna, and you know somebody's got to pick up the slack. Somebody's going to have to eat those eat those snaps, and they're not impact guys at this moment. I mean, Daryl Taylor, Daryl Taylor is a solid pass rusher. I think he's like top 10 in the league or top 15 in uh pass rush win rate yep. amongst edges. But I wouldn't venture to say that he's like a f- true three down lineman by any means. And no, he's not. Jenna was one of those guys that we've talked about where the coaches trusted him to pick his spots and send it, you know, yeah. try to make a play. Great point. And these other guys just are not that. And so putting that responsibility onto Boye Mafé now to kind of carry that edge group is tough when he's just still emerging into the player that I think we all now expect him to potentially become. But it's it's just a big ask.
0: It, it, it is. And and Mafé has done a titanic job of filling that role. He's He has been awesome. But there's a reason that every single team rotates their defensive linemen because it's an exhausting position. You are being asked every 45 seconds to make really explosive movements while a 300-pounder is pushing on you. Like that is
1: that – trying is to run past Trent it, Williams 40 exhausting. times a game.
0: Yeah, right, right. And so you got to rotate these guys in. And you're right. Daryl Taylor has been effective when he's on the field in terms of beating pass blocking. But to me Gerald Taylor's kind of like Kadarius Tony and it's like if you look at Tony's per route data it's off the charts it's like hall of fame level highlight how many sick how many yards he gets per route that he runs there's a reason he only runs like 10 to 15 routes a game it's because they're putting him in there when it's time to take advantage of a skill set he's not good enough to go out there and run 40 routes and win most of those, so they pick their spots. The same thing with Daryl Taylor. You just can't leave him out there for a bunch of plays. Now he's good when you pick your spots with him, but that's not good enough late in the game. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's, I I think of it kind of like uh, dynamic guard play in basketball mm-hmm. in the NBA, where you have a guy that just gets buckets. Like they're going to score. You're going to have like an offensive efficiency that you're going to put up like you know 120 points up to like 135 points a game. But if you can't get a stop and you're giving up 140 and your guy's getting flambéed every single possession, just putting through pick and roll after pick and roll, are you really achieving net positive value with that player on the floor?
0: I'm actually glad you made that that comparison because it reminds me of when Ray Allen played for the Sonics and George Carl was coach. And they locked horns a lot because Ray Allen was out there just Getting, I mean, he's a walking bucket, right? He's one of the great scorers of all time, and this was him at his Jesus Shuttlesworth peak. Yes. And George Carl told him something like, "What good is forty points a game if you're giving up thirty-eight on the other end, right?" Like that's not that that plus-minus looking like, man. Let's see it. Not that big of a net positive, and and yeah, I think I think that's a very astute observation. It's like, but here's the thing: that's ninety percent of NFL players, maybe more. Is that They're really good at one or two things. That's what gets them to the league. But there's so few Miles Garrett's and Aaron Donald's and Watts brothers out there. You know, there's only so many bosses on this planet where it's like, yeah, leave them out there and Max Crosby can play 98% of the snaps and just wreck games. Those dudes get paid $25 million a year for a reason because they're fucking unicorns, but everybody else has to fill a role and Seattle just doesn't have enough of those guys on the edge without Nwosu.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's the whole reason that, you know, the composition of each position group matters so much because you're mixing and matching, scrapbooking together uh, these these different skill sets to yep. paint a, a, to paint the picture that you're trying to achieve. And I just think Uchenna Nwosu might have been the rug that tied the whole room together. Yeah. So, <laughs> That's it's unfortunate. a great
0: Lebowski but, reference. Yeah, <laughs> uh,
1: let's let's move on here. Uh, we were we were talking about the defense uh, diminishing inefficiency, ineffectiveness, late in games. Let's switch over to the offense. We got a lot of questions about Shane Waldron. Mm-hmm. So let's start with loyal listener, my broken butt. Yeah, what <laughs> up, broken butt? Welcome uh, back. Why is Shane Waldron so creative for two ish drives. And then as soon as quarter number two hits, his brain is hit by an alien boring Ray and he forgets how to call an NFL offense. What's the deal with Shane Waldron. Okay.
0: Really glad that my broken butt chimed in here because we are so blessed. <laughs> I have been thinking a lot about Shane Waldron and you can look around the league and I'd rather have Shane Waldron than at least half of the play callers out there I think that the league has realized he has some limitations and I don't know if that's because he runs out of new plays over the course of a game or if it's because he just falls into a groove like you know how when you're playing Madden or like the old NCAA football like shout out NCAA football 2014 greatest video game of all time it's like you you try all your different plays in the playbook but you know, you've got three or four plays that are going to work. And yeah. when it's third and seven, you're calling so you this play because you're, you're going to get it. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder if there's some of that going on with Shane Waldron, you know, one thing, and maybe Mike, you can shed some light on this. I have always struggled to understand the difference in effectiveness between scripted plays and what happens after, you know, the, the number is 15 that you always hear. Most, Offensive coordinators script out their first fifteen plays. Well, that's on average going to be three drives. Why not make that twenty-five plays? Why not make that thirty plays? I, I, I honestly don't understand.
1: Yeah, well, the the true skill set of a great coordinator or great play caller is leveraging the data collection that is an mm-hmm. NFL game, the first half of an NFL mm-hmm. game, and then weaponizing it to mm. take out your opponent's legs mm-hmm. afterwards. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about how we're so confident in Shane Waldron scripting these plays. It's also like in an any given day sort of thing. Like sometimes something that you game plan that you thought was going to be effective against opponent just isn't working. Right. So how are you going to pivot? We talked so much about the importance of counterpunching. We, it looked like we thought that everything that we had saw from Shane Waldron last year, that he had an ability to counterpunch effectively. This season, that has not been the case. It hasn't. And... I mean, they just kind of fizzle out and then it comes down to like we talked about, like Gino and DK playing hero ball at the end of games and then Lockett, of course, because he is timeless and just still manages to fall down like the the beautiful infant that he is (laughs) in the soft spot of every zone known to man. But the identity crisis of not knowing if you're like an 11 personnel team or a 12 and 13 personnel team is tough as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's that's actually a great point because. When Shane Waldron was cooking last year, it was lots of 12 and 13 personnel. And that's really hard to say, you know what? I'd rather have Will Disley out there than Jackson Smith and Jigba. Like, there is a tension in that offensive identity because they drafted JSN. He has forced his way onto the field. And because DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett are there, and because Seattle will always be a bottom 10 team in terms of pace of play, There just aren't enough targets to go around for him to produce like Puka Nakua or Jordan Addison or Tank Dell, some of these other rookie receivers that are putting up really big numbers. I don't necessarily think it's because those guys are so much better than JSN. It's the target competition for those guys. Isn't anything like what JSN has to deal with. Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf earn 20 targets a game consistently. That's over 50% target share. There are yeah. so few teams that do that. And so it's like the thing that makes Shane Waldron, I think, really effective is his ability to weaponize his tight ends. And we're seeing fewer multiple tight end sets because you've got two good running backs and you've got three good receivers. So I, I think that that's actually that might be the closest thing to an answer we have mm-hmm. is that he is learning how to integrate a third receiver in a way that he didn't really have to do in Seattle before.
1: Well, the other part of it is the first season that he was here was the last Russell Wilson season, and I think that we have settled on the conclusion that when you have Russell Wilson as your quarterback, you kind of got to run the Russell Wilson offense. That's it. Uh, it. So last year was the first time that he got to really implement his vision and see it play out over a full season. And a lot of the time when they were running uh, like the heavier personnels with the tight ends on the field – it felt like they just spammed those naked bootlegs like Ooh. over and over. And it was just free yards all the time. Like you were just getting Colby Parkinson out in space and it was just 15 yards automatic. Boom. First down. Awesome. Drive extender. That has not been the case here. Like you've seen Gino take free rushers on those on when he's peeling out and trying to boot out. Another thing that I think is really tough is, you know, the disciplinary issues that we've seen, like the penalties and just not being able to stay on schedule. Yesterday on their second drive, on Seattle's second drive, when they went 15 plays for 62 yards. Jeez, that's gross. (laughs) Uh, And they ended up with a field goal. There was that play to Jake Bobo where it was like an illegal motion or something. Mm -hmm. So instead of like a five or six-yard gain, you have second and five. It ends up being first and 15. Immediately after that, delay of game, first and 20. Drive's basically over. You're not going to score a touchdown. It feels like for so many years, the defense was one drive-extending penalty away. Like, if you get to third down, you have to get off the field. Otherwise, you're just going to give up like 10 more plays and a touchdown. Yes. It kind of feels that way for the offense where last year, if you had like, you know, second and 15 plus, they were converting some of those. And they've done that a little bit this year as well. But it just feels like a mistake no matter how minimal is a de facto drive killer, you know?
0: Yeah. You know, I think that one of the challenges I'm glad you hit on it is these penalties because uh, you know, a friend of the show, Danny Kelly has uh, been really vocal this season, especially on the debilitating nature of sacks and offensive penalties. And Basically, your chances of scoring, if you give up a sack or like a hold, cut in half. So it's really difficult to overcome these penalties. And look, some of it is that Seattle's just been overmatched on the offensive line, especially on the right side with all the injuries. Yeah. Okay, that's football. I get it. I get it. Defensive linemen are better than offensive linemen across the board in the NFL. But the procedural stuff, not not having enough guys on the line of scrimmage, having two guys in motion when the snap starts, that stuff is really, really tough because that's the really avoidable stuff. And very few offensive coordinators are good at first and 15, are good at second and 12. And Seattle has just been in those situations way too Mm. much.
1: Yeah, it's you know tipping your hand. When the defense knows you're going to pass, it's a lot easier to defend the pass.
0: Absolutely. You're throwing out half your playbook, if not more, when you're behind the sticks.
1: That, and that's another thing that a lot of people have been frustrated by is Shane Waldron's willingness to abandon an effective run game. I, I understand they have that they've not the been running line, the ball very much. They haven't been doing it that much and it doesn't seem like they're getting as much push as you would like, but it hell of a lot more effective than Drew Locke dropbacks.
0: Well, <laughs> that that's the thing is like yesterday was a perfect game for Pete Carroll football. And it didn't happen. And look, I get it. Ken Walker was hurt, and I don't think you can overstate the value of Ken Walker in a game like that yesterday. I think if Ken Walker doesn't get hurt, Seattle wins that game. But he Zach, needs to
1: avoid Sofi like the plague because it was last year in that same game. I know. He, that I know. He went down. It's just it's
0: in in the same way that there's so few defensive linemen who can play ninety plus percent of the snaps. If you're not Derrick Henry or Saquon Barkley, you're not playing 90% of the snaps on offense either. Running back is an exhausting position, and it's a very dynamic position where you need to have, if you want to stay on the field and be a true three-down back, you need to be able to do a lot of things really well. And there's very few players who can do all of those things 60 times in a game without having their performance fall off. Zach Charbonnet is not there. Maybe he will get there, but that's not even the expectation. That's That's... Like I said, that's three, four guys on the planet who can do that. It's no knock on Charbonnet that he can't, or no knock on on Walker that he's not that. But when you lose Ken Walker so early in the game, you are now exhausting this rookie running back. And the drop-off from those two guys, from Walker and Charbonnet to DJ Dallas, is significant. DJ Dallas, I don't know what his longest career run is outside of a fake punt, but it ain't long you know, and, and so it is tough, but yesterday was a day for running the football and they didn't do it, especially with drew lock in there. And that was frustrating because even if drew lock just came in and handed the ball off every time, it's not what I'm I'm not advocating for that. You got to keep the threat of the pass with your backup quarterback in there. And drew locks, not a terrible player, but like clock was on your side, man. (laughs) It's the fourth quarter (laughs) and you're up by two scores. Like Mm -hmm. if you're going to go three and out, do it with an extra minute 20 coming off the clock
1: yep no doubt all right let's move to the final question Mm. from our great friend steve over at seattle cigar concierge yeah
0: what up steve Steve oh man just like the greatest professional partnership you could ever have i'm telling y'all seattle cigar concierge like i've been in the cigar world for 20 years now i've never
1: met anyone like this dude steve is the man steve is the man and steve asks a burning question Mm. what is the best cigar thought cigar of all time
0: okay so a little peek behind the curtain here i don't know how many people on the planet are more connected to the world of elite cigars than this guy is and so as a result the way this kind of partnership works is I get a chance to smoke some really amazing cigars and talk about them in the articles and on the show and, you know, and, and it's been great. You know, a lot of you guys listening have reached out to Steve and, and taken advantage of really an incredible partnership and, and being able to get cigars that you can't find at a really good price. So I say all of this because I have five years of <laughs> sending amazing cigars and I would say, okay, like the best cigars I've ever had are the Padron Anniversary Series and uh, some of the Arturo Fuente Opus X Series. Like those are amazing. I don't typically use them for games though. Um, Those are cigars that demand all of your attention and I like to save them for when it's just like, hey, I'm just going to smoke this cigar and focus on the cigar. That being said, last year I was in Cabo when the Seahawks clinched the playoffs, they won that game against the Rams. Quandary Diggs had the overtime interception. And then, you know, I was watching Haunted Bobby. I, I was watching in the sports bar at, at the resort with a bunch of lions fans as they pushed the Seahawks into the playoffs by beating uh, the Packers Sunday night. And that night I went out to the beach, brought my laptop, sat on a beach chair and wrote that article. And I smoked A Davidoff Year of the Rooster. So so Davidoff is one of the best cigar manufacturers in the world. And every year they do a Zodiac series where whatever, you know, the Chinese year of is, they do a really special blend release of that. And because of Steve and Seattle Cigar Concierge, I've been able to try a number of those different Zodiac series. Nothing touches the rooster. It's a top three cigar of my lifetime. And, and I smoked that on the beach, writing up that article with the Seahawks going to the playoffs with Geno fucking Smith during a rebuild year. And and I can honestly say, not, not only because of the circumstances, obviously a super exciting win going to the playoffs. I'm in Cabo, I'm sitting on the beach. It's like 11 o'clock at night and I'm writing. All of that definitely adds to the experience, but the cigar itself was so amazing. So I'm going to say best cigar thought cigar so far has been the Davidoff Year of the
1: Rooster. Hear that, Steve? The standard is set.
0: Let's go, baby. Bring bring them on. I need more of those. I don't <laughs> even right. think they exist anymore, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause they come they come in this like clamshell box of 10 and the price on them is just so irresponsible. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember when he reached out, he's like, Hey, I got these. You want them? And I was like, will I ever see these again? He said, no. (laughs) All right. Send them over. I'll take them. I'll take them. I'll take them. Oh, that is a great series of questions. I, I think we touched on, on pretty much everything that has been bugging Seahawks fans and you know, look, mailbag episodes tend to take on the tenor of the most recent result. And, I'm actually glad we did it after this game because it felt felt like that loss is a perfect time to take the temperature of the fans. And so, thank you to everyone that submitted your questions. Apologies to you know all those questions we weren't able to get to. But the Seahawks play again in three days on mm-hmm. Thanksgiving. The last time they played on Thanksgiving was also against the 49ers. They famously beat them. You had Richard Sherman and Russell Wilson eating turkey legs at the center of the field. It was beautiful. It was like an iconic moment during sure was. That, that stretch of Seahawks football. Uh, it's going to be real tough for them to be eating turkey at center field on, on Thursday. That's going to be really, yeah. really difficult. So, Mike, I'll throw it to you. You've, you've been great about asking me questions all day. How likely, I mean, the, the Niners, they had that, you know, five-game strategy. You talk about seasons within seasons. They start off 5-0, blowing everybody out, scoring 30-plus games, 30-plus points per game, and then they lost three in a row where they only scored 17 each of those three games. Now they're back to beating the brakes off everybody. If you play this game 10 times, Mike, and let's assume that Geno Smith is going to play in this game and that Jamal Adams is going to play in this game, how many times are those 10? Does Seattle win?
1: Does Abraham Lucas play in this game?
0: Let's say yeah, because it sounds like he might.
1: Probably like two or three. Yeah.
0: Yep. I-,
1: I feel like three is optimistic. That's what I'll say.
0: I think the 49ers are the best team in the NFL.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was when they played the Jags, it was like, oh, wow. When you get back, you're the best left tackle of this generation, uh, the most physical receiver we've seen in a decade. Oh, yeah. Maybe that makes a little bit of a difference. It's crazy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The the 49ers at full strength are, I mean, I, I think you're talking about the Chiefs and the Eagles are the only other two teams that are...
1: But their, even so, dude, the Chiefs don't have a fucking wide receiver. I like know. They, they have a good defense now. I take, you know, take the Niners over the Chiefs on a neutral field. I'd take the Niners over the Chiefs on neutral field. Yep. And the Eagles, I mean, the Eagles are still a beast, don't get me wrong. But like there have been more cracks this year than we saw last year. Totally. Whereas they lost the to the Ziners and Jets. <laughs> the I mean, you talk about a string of mini seasons within the overarching season. That Niners mini season outside of that they have looked untouchable mm-hmm. every second mm-hmm. that they have stood on the gridiron.
0: Brock Purdy had a perfect passer rating against the Bucks yesterday.
1: The Bucks are the Bucks are a great team. Like I feel like outside of, you know, we Baker Mayfield's a bit of a meme, but like, you know, I think that the Bucks have been Tom, this year. From, the The drop off from Tom Brady to Baker Mayfield is significant, but they're still a tough out. Their roster is loaded, especially in the trenches, and they got it put on them.
0: Yeah, and the thing is, you can say, oh, well, look at the Bucks' record. I think they're like four and six. Okay, fine. Maybe they're not a great team. But you know who's pretty good? Jacksonville Jaguars. And the 49ers beat them by like 35 a couple weeks ago. You know who else is a pretty good team? Dallas Cowboys. They beat them by 40. This team is not just winning games. They are rubbing your face in it. And I think Seattle probably keeps it a little closer than they were able to last year. Like last year, I didn't think you asked me Seahawks play the Niners 10 times. How many times do the Seahawks win? Probably zero, maybe one, maybe one with a bunch of injuries going their way or something. But if you could turn injuries off, Seattle's closer to the Niners than they were last year. But they are a tier at least below them. I would say you play this game 10 times because it's in Seattle. Seattle wins three of them. But in order to do that, they need Geno Smith. Straight up. They need Jamal Adams. Straight up. They need Abraham Lucas.
1: If You don't think that Drew are going out there and putting up 28? No, first four, first four drives, touchdowns. The scripts works.
0: Oh, my God. Dude,
1: Waldron, Waldron, pre, time to prepare, absolutely slicing and dicing down the field, and then they just don't gain a yard the rest of the game.
0: Here's the shitty thing is that the Niners' defense is so good, right? But their offense is really, really, really good also. They have the best running back on the planet. They have a quarterback who is perfectly suited for what's asked of him. The San Francisco 49ers are the toughest team to tackle in NFL history. Christian McCaffrey, probably the toughest running back to tackle. George Kittle is definitely the toughest tight end to tackle. Debo Smith might be the toughest wide receiver to tackle. And Brandon Iyuk is better than all of them, <laughs> except for maybe McCaffrey. Like, yeah. so, so not only do you have to overcome this really good defense, that I think is top five in the NFL. You have to score so many points against that defense to have a chance. I think if Seattle can get to 24, they have a chance, but it's probably going to take 30. And I have not seen
1: much from this team that tells me they can score 30. This season to date doesn't inspire confidence in that endeavor, but you never know. It's prime time in Seattle. Fuckery abounds in In short, short weeks.
0: Listen, man, I don't know the exact numbers. But home teams win on Thursdays. They just yeah. do. Like when you have a week, say, oh, not that anyone's changing time zones on this. But, you know, if you have to travel, that's a day. That is a day of preparation that you lose to your opponent. And when you only have three days of preparation and you got to give up one of those, that is why home teams win. So that, that helps. If this game was in San Francisco, I don't, I don't know that there's any chance Seattle wins.
1: Well, um, you're in luck because you'll see that in two short weeks. I know, <laughs> right? Right. So, yeah, uh, I think if
0: if Seattle does win, though, it's because they've played really disciplined football.
1: And clean, I thought clean football.
0: I thought that there was a hidden benefit to losing as bad as they did to Baltimore because we saw them come out and play a pretty disciplined game against the Commanders. It is my hope that the pain of losing this game. That they should have won i mean 16 to 7 in the fourth quarter even with geno smith hurt you play that out 10 times seattle wins eight to nine of them they blew that game and it's my hope that the sting of that forces a attention to detail that has been missing from this team so it's possible for sure but uh, (laughs) i haven't seen what the line is yet i'd be surprised if it's less than a touchdown yeah
1: No, I'm with you. It's going to take a Herculean effort to pull it off on Thursday, but you never know with this team.
0: And you know what's crazy? If Seattle wins that game, they're in first place.
1: Because, of course,
0: they are. (laughs) And that almost, that's like the perfect Seahawks narrative, honestly, is that they win this game and they're in first place. You know, so well, it, that, it was, could happen. that was the
1: same thing in 2019. Like that Niners team was a juggernaut, also, yep. and then they went into Levi's Stadium on Monday night, and they ended up winning that psycho game in overtime. That was insane. with Joe Tessitore losing his mind for the entire 60 yeah. minutes, so the entire 70 minutes.
0: So it, it is, it is possible. And, and here is the thing, you know, after I freaking vented for four hours writing that article last night, <laughs> yeah. at the end of the day, I said everything that Seattle wants to accomplish is still right in front of them. Right, It's uphill, but it's there. You beat the 49ers on Thursday. You control your destiny the rest of the way. And the 49ers got to play all of the same tough teams that Seattle does down the stretch. They haven't played Baltimore yet. So, I mean, there's losses on the Niners' schedule for sure. Seattle can handle business. Who knows? Anyway, man, look, super grateful that you went in on this with me. It just felt like it was time to hear from the fans. And as much as I love having all the amazing guests that we do, i really do always appreciate the chance to just chop it up with you
1: oh yeah always great to talk shit uh and the seahawks made it really easy to talk shit this weekend so (laughs) they did really played into your strengths as a (laughs) co-host hey thanks pete i appreciate all the work you've been putting in
0: (laughs) totally All right, friends, that's going to do it for today. Thank you to everybody that sent in the questions and the comments. Uh, Again, sorry we couldn't get to all of them, but this made for a great show on our end. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, As always, you can find Mike and I on social media. I am on Twitter at Jackson Bevins. That's J-A-C-S-O-N. Mike is on Twitter at at Mike Barwin, and the show itself is at Cigar Thoughts. You can catch full video episodes on our YouTube channel at Cigar Thoughts and find the rest of our socials at CigarThoughtsNFL.com. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com slash Cigar Thoughts. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and you like the show, drop us a five-star rating and leave a quick review. It's hard to overstate how much getting that feedback means to us because we put a lot of effort in this. And, and those of you who don't get a chance to pull the curtain back, Mike works his ass off to make this show look and sound as good as it does. He makes my life very, very easy as a host. So when we get that feedback from y'all, it really does mean a lot. Finally, be sure to check out CigarThoughtsNFL.com to get your exclusive Cigar Thoughts cigars or hit me up on Twitter and I'll shoot you the deeds. And when you buy those cigars, reach out, tell us what you think. Thank you to all of y'all listening for your continued support of the show. We know you've only got so much time for podcasts in your life. it's an honor to be a part of that for y'all please know that by sharing this show on social media and with your friends you give us the juice to keep making this happen we'll be back soon but in the meantime onwards and upwards my friends